Well, good morning. It is, uh, it is good to be here with you. Um, there's a lot of reasons I don't want to be in high school again, but that video kind of made me want to be in high school again. Anybody else? That looks, that looks like a lot of fun. Uh, my name's Elliot. Um, if I don't know you, uh, it's a pleasure to, to see you. I'd love to meet you. My wife, Anna, and I have uh, been uh, attending here. We've, been a, we've grown up here basically our whole lives. I did that at one point um, in high school here at CCS. Um, but we've been a part of, of this church our entire lives, other than a, sh- a short stint over on the east side. Uh, we have three kids, and one of those kids is still cooking, uh, but they will be here next month. Is that an okay way to say that? No, my, I'm going to get a thumbs down from, from my wife for that one. Um, Anyway, I'm, I have the privilege of closing out our, our, our book of Jonah this morning. Um, and over the last three weeks, we've gone through the last three chapters of Jonah. And I've so appreciated the, the other teachers in this series and the other perspectives um, that they've given to us. So we've heard from Pastor John week one and then Johnny Lopez uh, week two and then Pastor Paul on, on week three, uh, who I will henceforth refer to as my dad. So if you didn't have that dot connected, uh, that's, that's that. Uh, but if you weren't able to join us, I encourage you to go online and, and, and listen to those sermons. But before we get into chapter 4, I'd like to take us through a, a quick summary of the book of Jonah. So, Jonah's unique. Um, it's an interesting tale. It's been called a whale of a tale. Uh, but it, it's, it's actually really unique. It's the only book of the prophets that's solely narrative. So other books of the prophets have parts that are narrative, and they, uh, but they also include declarations of judgment and claims about the future. But the book of Jonah is a book about a prophet. Um, and it's written in such a way to make the reader think. And it's often written with kind of a humorous tone. Um, so most scholars would say that, that Jonah is a literary masterpiece because while it captures Jonah's experience, it also causes the reader to stop and reflect upon our own experiences. So in other words, the moment that we see Jonah and we go, oh my man, Jonah, you are being so ridiculous in the way you're acting or the things you're saying, we realize, wait a second, that's me. I'm Jonah. Um, and that's the opportunities we have for reflection. So as we recap the book, I want to ask you to pay attention to two things in particular. This is going to be our focus. Number one, that God's steadfast love for Jonah. And number two, how God uses Jonah despite his faults. So in chapter one, we're introduced to Jonah. He's the prophet of Yahweh. Um, And whenever you see in in your Bible the the word Lord in all capital letters, that is the personal name for God or Yahweh. Um, And he's called to the city of Nineveh to go and cry out against it. And that is to declare God's judgment for wickedness. But instead of being obedient, he is blatantly disobedient and he goes in the wrong direction or he goes in the opposite direction about as far as he can. And the question is why? Why does he do that? Well, we're going to come back to this as we, as we continue to, to talk about uh, chapter 4. But he really doesn't want to go because he knows who God is. Uh, but with that, Nineveh, we've talked about this before. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire at the time. Um, and the Assyrians were a very wicked, violent people. And, and not only that, they were enemies of Israel. 
And so not to say that hatred for people is ever okay, but we can kind of sympathize with why Jonah doesn't like these people once we understand that they're, they're enemies and there's a brutality element to that. And again, we've talked about that in previous weeks, so if you want to go listen to those to get more details, I'd encourage you to do that. But God tells Jonah to go and proclaim judgment on the people, and he goes in the opposite direction. And and it would be natural to infer that, okay, these are brutal enemies, and so Jonah's probably afraid. He's probably afraid he doesn't want to go into the city because that's likely a death wish. But like I said, that's really not the reason. We're going to see that the reason that Jonah doesn't want to go is because he knows who Yahweh is and what will happen. So Jonah disobeys God. He goes in the opposite direction uh, of Nineveh, and, and he pays the fare, and he goes into a boat. He's determined in his rebellion, right? But God does not let Jonah remain in his sinfulness. God sends a great wind, and the boat is caught up into a storm and begins to break apart. And we see the sailors, the sailors on the boat crying out to all kinds of gods, hoping that they will be saved. And then they go look for Jonah, and they find him in the bottom of the boat asleep right? How could he be sleeping when death seems to be so imminent? And I would submit to you that death was all right with Jonah. He was so determined in his rebellion, he did not want to go to Nineveh. And you know what? He couldn't go if he was dead. Um, But he is also confronted with the fact that the wickedness of his disobedience is impacting those around him. It's impacting these sailors. And so finally he explains, yeah, I'm Jonah. I'm a, I'm a prophet of Yahweh. You know, the one who made the sea and the dry land that's, you know, thrashing our, our boat around. And so he explains that this whole storm is his fault and he instructs them to throw him into the sea. Now, what's interesting is because of this process, what we see from the pagan sailors is that they're introduced to God and they seemingly dedicate their lives to God right? They're saved in this process. And I I would just say uh, a quick comment about the fact that uh, God is so good that in his sovereignty, he can even use Jonah's blatant disobedience to bring people unto himself. Now, the next part is the part that we all talk about, the part that everybody loves. He gets swallowed by a great fish, and he spends three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Um, Now, I just want to say, and I think we've said this already, but we make way too big a deal about this fish, right? We think of Jonah Jonah and the fish. That's the whole story. Well, it's a part of the story. Um, And in preparation for this, I listened to one of Chuck Smith's teachings on the book of Jonah. And I love Chuck Smith. He had a unique ability to be both blunt with a kind, gentle tone, right? Uh, For any of you who've listened to him, you might be familiar with that. But he says, uh, he puts three perspectives on the fish that I want to share with you. He says, first of all, the fish is simply an instrument of accomplishing God's will. So is the wind, so is the plant, so is the worm, which we're going to talk about today. Second, we believe in a God that can do anything, right? He made this natural world. He can use it however he wants. He could have a person swallowed by a fish and preserve their life for three days. But finally, this fish story is not a barometer for whether or not you believe in miracles. Our our entire faith is based on this foundation, that the man Christ Jesus died on a cross and resurrected from the dead, and ascended into heaven, which is a much harder thing to believe than someone being swallowed by a fish. Amen? But not to mention, this actually is also a foreshadowing 
of the very, that very thing, which Jesus talks about in Matthew 12, 40, which says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jonah spends three days and three nights in the fish, and I think this is one of those moments that's kind of funny. It's, it's, uh, Chuck Smith brought this out to me. It says, and then he prayed. So dude was in the fish for three days and three nights before he actually repented. That's how stubborn this guy was, right? He was so set on his disobedient ways, but God's love is faithful to him in that. He continues to pursue Jonah until finally Jonah repents. And then we get the beautiful poetic prayer of chapter 2 that, that Johnny spoke on. Um, I'll tell you a story. I have a son. He's two years old. Uh, this story happened a few months ago, but I'll say this. He has a rebellious spirit. <laughs> that reminds me about Jonah. Um, and so the other day, I'm changing his diaper, and I won't get into too many details, don't worry. Um, but I'm changing his diaper, and I'm usually wearing my watch. And as I'm changing it, the watch lights up, and he just wants to touch it, right? And so this day in particular, uh, the diaper was messier than normal. Um, and so he was trying to touch my watch, and I was worried that things were going to go badly. Um, and I said, hey, stop touching my watch. And he didn't. And I told him again, stop touching my watch. And he didn't. And so I have to be stern with him as a father should. And I said, hey, you need to stop touching my watch. And he pauses for a minute and he kind of lays there and I go back to doing what I'm doing. And then he puts his little hand on top of mine and he goes, daddy, 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 listen to me. I will touch it. <laughs> and at that point he won, right? I laughed. It was over. He got, he got me that round. But, but he put his little hand on top of mine as if to say, look, I'm in charge here, all right? Um, and that's the kind of attitude we see out of Jonah in his rebellion. So after three days and three nights, he finally breaks, he repents. And as Johnny taught on, we see, we see Jonah come to this place because at this, at this low place, this point of, of near death. And he understands that it's because God is merciful that he actually brought him to that place. God would not let Jonah perish in his disobedience because God desired that Jonah would be repentant and receive his mercy as he does for all people. So Jonah comes to understand that God could have let him go, could have let him perish, but God's so faithful and loving that he pursues him even though he doesn't deserve it. And it leads him to declare what we see in chapter 2, salvation is of the Lord. And so Jonah repents, he gets spit up on dry land, and God gives him a new command. Arise, go to Nineveh, and tells him to do it again, that great city, and preach the message that I tell you. And this time, Jonah's obedient. He goes into Nineveh, he says, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was the message. And the people of Nineveh actually repent. That's the amazing part of the story. They listen. There's this great awakening in the city, the, you know, the greatest altar call of all times, as, as it's been said. Um, this city had a population somewhere between 120,000 and like a million people. The people believe differently on that. Um, and, and because they repent, God actually shows them mercy. He relents from bringing judgment upon the city. So what we've seen in this book is we've seen a disobedient prophet who repented of his sin, obediently speak the word of God, and thousands of people are saved, right? And that's the book, right? Success story. Is that, that's the end? 
not the end. Um, we have chapter four to look at. And chapter four kind of turns this into a, into a, a very different story. The seemingly success story uh, becomes a complex narrative that confronts our very own hearts. And that's what we're going to get into this morning. So if you're not already there, please turn to Jonah chapter four. Would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? We'll actually start in chapter 3, verse 10. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant, and it came up over Jonah, that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned, the next day God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even unto death. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that your word is living and active and speaking to us. Here we are a few thousand years later reading this book, Lord, asking what you have for us this morning. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bless our time and that you would open our eyes to truth, that you would open our eyes to understand the depth of God's love for us. And we thank you that like you didn't give up on Jonah, you don't give up on us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go ahead and take a seat. So Jonah goes to the city. He proclaims judgment on it, and the people they repent. There's a mass revival in front of his eyes. And now, if you're a preacher, that's a pretty good day, right? Like, that's going to go on your resume as, yeah, I, I'm the one that spoke in Nineveh. Um, he's used as this instrument to bring this great revival and we don't see Jonah here celebrating. We see that he's very dis- exceedingly displeased. He's really mad. He's furious that these people have repented and that God has relented from his judgment. And that's because Jonah's heart is so hateful toward the people of Nineveh, he doesn't want them to receive God's mercy. As my dad said last week, it's Jonah's repentance himself is still in process. And while Jonah's grateful for the mercy that he's received, he was angry that his enemies might receive that same kind of mercy. So remember what I said at the beginning. Why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh to preach to them? 
It wasn't because he was afraid of them. It was because he knew exactly who God is. So read uh, chapter 4, verse 2 with me. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my, uh, my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I knew you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. So he basically says, I knew you were going to do this. That's why I didn't want to come. That's exactly why I didn't want to come. Because if I hadn't come, these people would be wiped off the face of the earth. But now they've received salvation and mercy. They don't deserve that. These are my enemies. So Jonah 4.2, if you may be familiar, is a quote of Exodus 34.6, when God himself proclaims who he is to Moses. It says, in Exodus 34, 6, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So what we hear, see here is that Jonah knows his God. He knows Yahweh. He knows who God is. And he knew God would act exactly according to his character. And that's exactly what we saw happened. So God is a righteous judge, right? He has every right to bring judgment upon wickedness. But he also reserves the right to show mercy to those who are genuinely repentant. In Jeremiah 18, 7 through 8, it says, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck it up, to pull it down, and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I brought upon it. And this is what has Jonah so upset. He hates uh, that these people have received salvation, and according to him, they don't deserve it. This prophet who from the belly of the fish prayed a prayer of gratitude for God saving him, is upset that others would receive that same kind of salvation. According to Jonah, he deserves salvation, but the Ninevites do not, right? Now, I don't know about you, but when I read uh, Jonah chapter 4-2 or Exodus 34-6, I'm filled with hope, right? It's a wonderful thing that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, in fact, that's the hope of the world, right? If he wasn't that way, uh, then we'd all be destined for damnation. But it's because he is that way that we have the opportunity for salvation through Jesus Christ. Amen? In the, in the book of Jonah, we, see, we, we don't see the God of anger and wrath, as some would say, that the God of the Old Testament is, right? We see that he is loving. He's just to be sure, he's just, but he's slow to anger, abounding in love, hopeful that people will repent and turn to him so that he might forgive and show mercy. In fact, I would say in the Old Testament, it's full of verses on how loving and gracious God is, slow to anger and ready to forgive. Let me give you a few. Psalms 86.5 says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Joel 2.13 says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and, great, and, and of great kindness. He relents from doing harm. 
Finally, Micah 7, 18 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in showing mercy. So if you're here this morning and your, your sole perspective of God is that he's a wrathful judge, I want to invite you to get to know him. You'll learn that he loves you. You'll learn that he's compassionate gracious, and delights in showing mercy. He's slow to anger and ready to forgive. And he does not will that anyone should perish. God desires that everyone would come uh, to his salvation. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That verse has been a real encouragement for me uh, in, this, in this recent season of life. But this is actually the very thing that Jonah's angry about. He's angry at God for acting according to his character. Um, the ES, my ESV study Bible said about these verses, ironically, the standard confession of the compassionate character of God is the root of Jonah's anger. Steadfast love, when extended to Jonah, fills him with thanksgiving, but when extended to the Ninevites, fills him with anger. And what's interesting about this story uh, is that one dimension that we, we look upon and realize is that Jonah himself is receiving that very steadfast love through this whole process, right? God is slow to anger with Jonah. He's lovingly pursuing him when he runs away. He doesn't shame Jonah when his anger, when his anger is sinful, but he lovingly approaches him with a question. He comes to him and says, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And one, one commentator I read said a better translation would maybe be, is doing good displeasing to you? And that's a rhetorical question, right? The answer is no. Uh, it's, it's not right for Jonah to be angry. Doing good should not be displeasing. Uh, but God is asking this question because he's pursuing Jonah's heart. He's drawing out the truth in Jonah's heart that he might grow in his love towards others. So chapter 4 verse 5 says, So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east hill of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. So Jonah storms out of the city. He's a safe distance from harm. And he wants to watch what might become of the city. Now remember what he proclaimed over the city. Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So even though Jonah's witnessed their repentance and he knows God's character, uh, that God is merciful and will relent from judgment, he still has hope. He hopes that the repentance will wear off, basically. He's going to sit there and he's going to wait 40 days to see if this wicked people actually returns uh, or actually turns from their wicked ways or if the judgment of God actually comes. And so he settles in to see if Nineveh will be overthrown. And we know exactly what he's hoping to see. He's hoping to see Sodom and Gomorrah. He's hoping to see Genesis 19:28. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and he, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of, of the furnace. So Jonah's made a temporary home outside of the city where he will be safe from harm, uh, but this is what he's hoping and what he plans to see. And I think we've been confronted with this question multiple times in this series, but this is another opportunity for us to stop and ask this question. Why Jonah? Why did God choose to use Jonah? 
Why didn't God choose someone else who might be more obedient and have a, a kinder heart? Why, why didn't he let Jonah uh, perish in the ocean when he was being so sinfully angry or, or um, disobedient? Why doesn't he uh, just let, or why does God let Jonah have such a bad attitude? That's, these are questions that come up in, inside of my mind. And the, and the thing is that God is continuing to pursue Jonah. And the, the reason for that is threefold, I would say. The first, so that Jonah might learn something. Uh, I mentioned it earlier. My dad said Jonah's repentance is still in process. And just like all of us, he's continuing to struggle in sin. But God is the one that's faithful. And he forgives. And he helps him to work through it. Um, number two, so that even more might receive salvation. I, I mentioned it earlier that even in, in Jonah's disobedience, people were brought to God. People were saved. Um, and the question is, would, would they have had that same kind of experience if God didn't uh, faithfully pursue a stubborn prophet? Uh, but not only that, Jonah receives and experiences salvation when he is delivered through the fish. Uh, but now he's experiencing the salvation of being delivered from his own sinful heart. And number three, so that we might learn something from Jonah, right? Here we are a few thousand years later. We're studying the book. We're asking the question, what is the Spirit saying to us through his word? So what we see next is God's continued loving pursuit. Um, uh, verse 6, And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. So just as God miraculously used the fish, he now prepares a plant. And later we read that it came up in the night and then it perished in the night. So God certainly can use his creation for his purposes. And it says that Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Right? We've seen these intense emotions from Jonah. First, he's very angry. Now he's very happy um, that he's received relief from the heat through this plant. But God is preparing. Right? He's being intentional, and he's preparing to teach Jonah a lesson about his own heart. Verse 7 through 9, But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that, that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then God said, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Then he said, It is right for me to be angry, even unto death. So this little worm, this little miraculous worm, uh, came and he, and he ate, the, ate the plant. And, and this is a, a reflection of what we saw with the fish. Similar to God delivering Jonah from death by the fish, God uses a little worm to deliver Jonah from his spiritual death, the wickedness of his own heart. So the worm eats the plant, and the plant dies. And now Jonah's sitting in the sun. And he's not only in the sun, he's got a hot wind blowing upon him, and he's very angry. And he wishes again that he would die. And remember, this whole time, he's sitting there waiting, hoping that for the destruction of Nineveh to come. And you can only imagine that, as, as happens with anger, I, I don't know, does anybody else get angry? Just me. Um, as happens with anger, day by day, he's, he's seething. He's getting more and more angry as he's waiting for this to happen because he knows it's not coming. He knows that God will relent from bringing destruction. And he was already so angry that he wanted to die. Now he's faint 
and he's lost his plant, the only thing bringing him comfort, and he's in distress, and he wants to die again. And we see that he became attached to the plant as if he had some sort of right to it, right? He didn't make the plant grow. He didn't water it and fertilize it and tend to it, uh, but he would rather die than not have his plant. Um, And this is the moment where God's steadfast love and mercy is shown to Jonah again. He's been brought low, similar to being in the depth of the fish's belly. He's reached the depth of his own depraved heart. And again, when God could have said, you know what, Jonah, I'm done with you. Your heart is so hard. You're you're never going to get this. I'm done with you. He, He doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. He instead comes to Jonah as a father who loves his child. He puts his arm around Jonah and he opens his eyes to the truth. In verse 10, it says, But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? And that's the end of the book. It literally ends with a question. Jonah's confronted with the wickedness of his own heart because he cares more about this little plant that he's had no personal investment in than a city filled with people that God created. Now, some take that 120,000 to be the total population of the city and the knowing their right hand from their left to be an image that they're so morally confused they don't know right from wrong. But some take that uh, to be a little bit more literal and to say 120,000 little children who are so young they don't know their right hand from their left. And this would put the actual population of the city, you know, maybe closer towards a million people. But here's the answer. Um, Here's here's what matters. It really doesn't matter for the point of the story what the total population uh, was. Because the point of this whole thing is God's question to Jonah. Should I not pity Nineveh? And the, the answer to that question unlocks the whole book, right? But we're not given an answer. We're only given a question. And, and we can infer some answers, but the book ends here so that the reader would be left pondering. Why does this book end with the phrase, with much livestock? The, literally the last word of the book is cows, all right? Um, so, but uh, it, it gives us a moment to go, wait a minute. What about me? Wait a minute, I'm Jonah. Wait a minute, my heart is so wicked, just like Jonah's. We're confronted with this question about the people in our own lives. We all have received an immeasurable amount of God's mercy, and now he'd ask us, should I not pity them too? And we should ask ourselves, who is Nineveh to me? Is it a person? Is it a group of people? Is it a type of people? Who do I hate? Now, we all know we're not supposed to hate people, right? So I think we have a hard time admitting when we actually do. So honestly, who do I hate? Who do I believe is too far gone? They're unreachable. They're not worth my time. Or who am I so angry at that I can no longer see their humanity anymore? The story's designed to make us reflect, and it's designed to teach us some things, not just a basic moral truth like don't be a jerk, uh, but, but to reflect on the complex dimensions of our own heart emotions and the complex dimensions of the character of God. 
Um, now, to be honest, as we get close to closing, um, there's about 14 different directions that you could, you could take this moment. Um, and that's the beauty about the scriptures. That's the beauty of um, the way that, that the scriptures is the living word of God. The Holy Spirit can use it to speak to us in our moment, in our time, and speak to us directly. So you'll come back to the book of Jonah one day, um, and you'll see a lot of these same truths, but the Holy Spirit will reveal to you uh, some different truths, some different dimensions that you need to hear in that moment. But my prayer in preparing for this morning has been that God would use me to speak to us in this specific time, in this specific place, what he wants to hear. And I want to encourage you in two conclusions this morning. Number one, that God's love for you is steadfast. That's not a word we use very often, but synonyms for steadfast are faithful, patient, unwavering. God's love for you is unwavering. God loves us so much that he doesn't give, us on, uh, give up on us. He's so patient with us that we, when we reach the depths, he continues to pursue us. And the moment that we think that we're any different than Jonah, we've missed the whole point of the book. We must be honest that we too are rebellious and full of sin. Our hearts, apart from the grace of God, are selfish and full of hatred towards others. But God doesn't leave us there. He doesn't give up on us when we get there. Even when we're questioning him, even when we're putting his goodness on trial, his love remains unwavering. And, and there's been multiple moments in this book where we've seen Jonah reach this place. And in each of these moments, God continues to pursue him. And what I want you to hear this morning is that wherever you are, God continues to pursue you. So maybe you're doubting. Maybe you're struggling to, to believe in God. Maybe you've done something really wrong in life and you're struggling with whether God still loves you. Maybe you're angry. Maybe you're struggling to understand why God would allow that thing. Maybe you're angry at others and, and that hate has so filled your heart you feel justified in it and struggle that God would love a person that's your enemy. Or maybe you don't believe in God at all. Maybe you're here and you're kind of like, why in the world do people believe in this stuff? And I, I would say the same thing to you that I, I want to say to myself, that God's love is still pursuing you wherever you are. He's not gone anywhere, and the depth of his love for you has not changed. The reality is, well, actually, you, you may have heard this this phrase a thousand times, but I want to give you a moment to, to think on it and consider it. Um, nothing you have done or could ever do will change how much God loves you. Do you believe that this morning? The reality is we can't comprehend the depth of God's love. My, my favorite hymn is called The Love of God, um, and I think the third verse beautifully captures how incomprehensible the depth of God's love is. It says, could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every one a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. I think that's just a beautiful image for us. Conclusion number two, God wants to use you. God wanted to use Jonah to preach to the Ninevites so that a million people might be saved. And he wanted to use Jonah 
so that he could change him too. So God's interested in using you to reach others, but he's also interested in you. He cares about changing your heart too. When we're obedient to do the work that God is calling us to do, he'll not only use us to bring salvation, his salvation into the world, he'll also be working on our own hearts. So I think we could all agree, Jonah didn't seem like the best tool for the job, right? It's kind of like mowing the lawn with a pair of scissors. It was like, it works, but it's, it's rough. Uh, but that's how it seemed. But what we saw here today is that God had a purpose and a plan for Jonah in all of this. God was not only pursuing the people of Nineveh, he was also pursuing Jonah too. Now remember, who are we in the story? We're Jonah, right? So I would say to you, it doesn't matter how much you're up to the task, God can use you, and he wants to use you. And when he does, you can count on the fact that he'll bear fruit uh, even inside of your own heart. We're all invited to the work of God on, on a daily basis. And maybe your, your obedience is reluctant at times, right? That's okay. You're still in process. God can work with that. Maybe your obedience is enthusiastic but misdirected. That's okay. God can get you back on the right path however he wants to. So my question for you this morning is simply this. Are you being obedient? Are you looking for opportunities to be an example of God's love in the world? Are you listening to the Holy Spirit to tell you what to do? Now, I was contemplating this a little bit, um, and a couple things came to mind. First, I think whenever you say, are you listening to the Holy Spirit, uh, we can struggle with that. A natural response is, I don't really know what that looks like, right? We want an audible voice and a clear plan. And I think we can overcomplicate this. Now, I'm not professing to necessarily have figured this out, uh, but the Spirit speaks to us in many different ways. He speaks to us through his word. Sometimes he speaks to us through his people. And sometimes he speaks to us in our own thoughts and desires of our hearts. And so, like I said, I don't have this figured out, but I want to kind of tell you where I think we can start. I think a basic place to begin is to simply do good. Do good in the world. Do you ever have a random thought to do something for another person? To give somebody something? To say an encouraging word? That might just be the Holy Spirit prompting you to give that person exactly what they need to know the love of God in their process. I think we can get discouraged sometimes when, when we didn't quite get to the gospel. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't get there or try to get there, but be encouraged that it's the Holy Spirit that does the work and there's a process happening. And the extension of the love of God and an encouraging word in someone's life can be just as valuable as taking them uh, through, um, through the whole gospel. Now, as we go about doing good in the world, it might be the Holy Spirit prompting you to do that, right? I want to give you a practical, um, a practical encouragement too. It might not be, but is it bad that you did some good, <laughs> right? Just do it is what I would say. That it can't be bad that you're extending God's love uh, by, by your own thought and desire. So you might think of a kind word to say. You might think to give something to someone. You might think to sit and listen to them and make them feel cared for. By extending love towards them, you're extending God's love into the world, and who knows how he's going to use it. I have a personal kind of uh, 
unique story uh, about this. One time when I was a teenager, I was uh, struggling. I was struggling to believe that God loved me uh, based upon all the things that I had done. I was, I was struggling to believe whether or not I was a Christian. I, I didn't know as a teenager. I was, I was contemplating, God, am I even a Christian? I've said the prayer. I've, you know, committed my life to you, but what, is, what does this really mean? And, and I remember praying and asking God, would you just reveal to me if I'm a Christian or not? Um, and one day I was going out to lunch with Joe Monto over here at the, the Kent Taco Bell. Um, and these struggles were fresh, and I had recently prayed that prayer. And we got our food, and we sat at the table. And this is about the craziest thing that's happened to me in my life. It's not like crazy things are happening all the time. But this random lady walked up to us, and she said, Hi, this is random, but I saw you two walking in here in, in the parking lot, and I felt like God wanted me to tell you that I know you're two Christian young men. Have a nice day. And she left. And I probably made some joke to Joe, like, who was that crazy lady? That was weird. Uh, but I'm so thankful for that woman who was obedient to a Holy Spirit's prompting to come and say that to us. She probably felt like this is a little weird. But she believed in faith and she trusted that it was something that was needed. And it was something that I needed. It was something so critical for me in that moment. Um, and, and it was certainly a significant moment in me coming to a, a full personal relationship with God. And I think that's a, a beautiful example of how God uses us in small ways to fulfill his purposes in the world. I can be easily discouraged because, to be honest with you, I have not walked with someone from uh, being a total unbeliever to being a mature disciple of Jesus. Now, I've had the opportunity to be a part of different stages, and maybe you've had the opportunity to do that and praise God for that. But I can be discouraged uh, that I don't necessarily have that, that fruit in my life. But the Spirit has been encouraging me lately that we all have a different role to play. And we all play that role in different stages of people's walk. But it's he who takes someone through the whole process. Paul writes about this in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 6. It says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God, gives who, but God who gives the increase. So I'll never know that lady in Taco Bell. I don't even know what she looks like. Uh, but the Holy Spirit used her to do some watering in my life. So I'd ask you, are you being diligent to do what you can with what's in front of you? A little planting here, a little watering there, an encouraging word for this person, sharing the gospel with that person, an act of sacrificial love towards that person. All of those things the, the Spirit can be using to bring someone through the whole process. So back to Jonah for a minute. I'm going to infer this, so do what you will with what I'm about to say, but I think that Jonah got it. I think that the Spirit of God, using the words of God, softened Jonah's heart, and he understood that what God was trying to teach him, that mercy is for everyone. And after all, he told his story, right? Whether or not you believe uh, that Jonah wrote the book directly or, or he told his story orally and someone wrote it down eventually, he certainly gave a first-person account uh, of his story, and I would say this, who tells a story about themselves painted in such a negative light unless they've been so humbled by the grace of God that you can tell your story with brutal honesty so that the reader can see the wonderful truth of God and his salvation in the world that is for the whole world. So just as Jonah's experience in the fish helped him to see God's love and mercy for him, 
His experience in the desert helped him to see God's love and mercy is for everyone. And we're going to take communion this morning, and I'll go ahead and invite Kevin up, um, and he's going to lead us in that. But as, as we do that, I want to invite you to look at the cross and be reminded that God's love, God loves you so much that he did that. What better example is there of the depth of God's love for us? There's really none. That is the example. And God's mercy is available to everyone because he laid down his life on the cross. So let's do that. Take communion together. The band can come out if they're here. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.